What's up, everybody? You're listening to episode 17 of Composer Code, and today's guest is Matthew Carl Earl, the talented composer over at Hexany Audio. In this interview, Matthew shares how his metal roots inform his writing style and how his journey collecting rare and unusual Chinese instruments would ultimately go on to form the soundtrack for the largest Chinese MMORPG, Moonlight Blade. We also talked about some key differences between working as a freelancer and as an employed composer. As always, there are tons of practical takeaways for both new and experienced composers, so definitely stick around for this interview. Before we dive in, though, I just want to make a quick announcement about the future of Composer Code. As you may already know, if you follow Composer Code online, I've started a Patreon for the show. I won't bore you with all the details here, but long story short, I want to make Composer Code the best it can possibly be in 2019 and beyond uh, and interview three or maybe even four times as many composers as I did in 2018. I have a whole lot of other goals as well in expanding the brand. I'm really excited about it. So if you're interested in learning more, definitely check out patreon.com slash composer code for more info. So for the very first time, I'd like to thank my early patrons from the bottom of my heart, 8-Bit Music Theory, Kanoa K, Miguel Benitez, Namurator, and Zamka. Thank you so much for your support. You guys helped make this show possible. I really appreciate you believing in me. Without further ado, my interview with Matthew Carl Earl. I would love uh, to start out by asking what I ask everyone that I have on the show, and that's uh, how you got involved in composition, kind of your origin story from a kid um, all the way up to where you are now. I'd love to hear kind of your story. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, the, the first, I guess, foray into music was when I was around five or six, my, uh, my mother had a grand piano. She played a bit and she wanted to teach me and was making me do piano recitals for our neighborhoods and family and stuff. But I, I honestly hated it <laughs> at that point. I wasn't a huge fan. And, um, and I went a long time, not really being super into music until I was around, uh, like 11 or 12. And I started playing drum set and I got into like rock music and stuff. And that got me into like metal. And it, once you you know get into metal, you like kind of lose your mind and you're like all about metal, you know, and I was just a metalhead forever. And then, yeah. uh, that got me into learning like how I could start creating my own music. And I, I was having a lot of fun playing different instruments. Uh, I was drumming in some bands and then I started to pick up guitar and I was still playing piano a little bit at the time. And because I was getting into composition and writing metal songs, I started to get into classical music and music theory because I thought it would help my writing and stuff like that. And basically all I did throughout my high school years was not attend any of my classes and just write music with my friends and ditch school and, and record, record music. And then at the same time, because I was really into producing my own music at that time, I, was, uh, I started working as an apprentice at a local recording studio. And that was mm. awesome. I, I was doing that really as just a, a short term thing like, oh, I'll just learn how to produce my own music because this will be fun. But I didn't mm. realize like that would actually be like probably the most beneficial thing I ever did. So that was cool. So I worked I worked for free out of a studio just recording metal and rock bands and stuff and picked up that knowledge and then started producing my own records. What what was it about that experience that was so valuable? Was it the networking? Was it the contacts you made? Was it just the practical knowledge of how to produce? What what about that you said it was so or one of the one of the most uh powerful positive things that happened in your life early on? 
I think definitely the skills and and perception you pick up from it. I think like that that kind of taught me to listen to music in a totally different way. A lot of times people get really, really into writing and which is awesome. I'm super into composition and that's always been my focus and everything like that. But people sometimes like don't realize how important the actual recording process is and how important the, the end product and how it sounds is honestly nowadays more important than how good the music is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you, you can get away with, with excellent sounding timbres and really beautiful sounding music, even if the music is very simple. And that was something I was able to pick up from. And, and also just having that ability to be able to produce my own music and know how to produce these different genres. I, I didn't, I didn't see that it would help me in my career now doing game music, but it really does because mm. the majority of the stuff I do, I have to self-produce. I do my own mixing and do my own recording and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't have these skills, it'd be a lot more difficult. Right. So, right. Well, great. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry to, sorry to cut you off there. Please continue. Anyways. And then from then on, um, I, I eventually, left high school uh, a little early, like a year and a half early, because I, I had it in my mind I was going to be a professional rock star, you know, so, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which was ridiculous. But uh, so I, I went to uh, a local community college and started studying a little bit more music. And I always had it in my mind because I was playing games a ton at the time where I'm like, dude, it would be so cool to be a game composer. And I was mm-hmm. playing like World of Warcraft and hearing some of these awesome, awesome things. And I'm like, that is so awesome. I would love to do that. But I just hadn't the slightest idea in my mind how to start doing that. Mm-hmm. And I just kept doing my, my band thing and working as a recording engineer and I was teaching music a little bit on the side, private lessons. And then my then girlfriend, now fiance, uh, who is also her, her dream was always to work in games. She's, she's actually a, a 3d character artist at blizzard right now, but at that, oh, time, that's so she, cool. at, at that time she was in school and, uh, her class was making a video game and she was like, well, you know, like, why don't you, why don't you score the music for my class's video game? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds awesome. So I just, wrote like one or two tracks for this really silly game called The Last Anteater. And it was just a little 3D platformer of an anteater running around. And it was like kind of an oriental atmosphere and everything. And that game actually got sent to like an intercollegiate award type thing. It was like IGGG thing. And mm-hmm. I went with the school, even though I didn't even go to the school, but I went with the class to that award thing. And they were talking about some comments about the music saying they really liked the music and things like that. And there were some people in the audience that approached me afterward that, that said, Hey, I really like the music. Why don't you do some stuff for my game and we'll pay you and stuff. And I was I, my first paying client. So I was giving him like crazy low rates. I was working for like nothing. It was, it was pretty crazy. Yeah. And, uh, but, but those ended up being my first clients. And, and one of those clients I actually still work with. It's like almost, five, five and a half years later or something like that. But I, I wow. still work with one of those clients. But but those kind of started to build my own portfolio of actual game work. And mm-hmm. then and then eventually through Facebook, actually, I got involved with Hexany Audio. So I saw Richard, our audio director, he posted a job application when they were hiring their very first employee for a composer and sound designer. And I was like, oh, I've been messing around with sound design and I really love music. And I applied and I sent the stuff in and I've just been with the company ever since. So going back to your uh, kind of your influences, would you say that the games like World of Warcraft you had mentioned were big influences on you? Were there any other games that you were just like captivated by the music or that kind of made you notice like, wow, video games can have amazing music? Even when I was young and I wasn't super interested in music, like the opening screen to uh, to the 
the Ocarina of Time, like Legend of Zelda, mm-hmm. just those yeah. little pianos. Like the, the piano arpeggio things. I was just like, ooh, I love that. And every time I'd start the game, I'm like, ooh, that just, that makes me feel good. So, yeah. so yeah. there were things like that that I definitely remembered. But it definitely was World of Warcraft because I was just a total geek. I was playing just nonstop in high school. And that was, yeah. that was like, wow, I really would love to do this and I really love this style of music. But as I started to get more into game music, I really started to pay attention. And um, Dead Space 3 was actually one of the mm. first games where I was like, wow, this is really cool. Because I played the first two Dead Spaces and I really liked them and they were awesome. And the score was really interesting and interactive. And it was all it was all the cool aleatoric effects and stuff. But mm. Dead Space 3 was the first one to have like a real musical score. And I, I just loved the moods it was creating. And it was never it never got in the face of the game you know it never it was never distracting but it only came out when it when it was needed i thought that was a super well done score and that was like a, a big kind of like eye-opener for me too for how to score games as well thought that game yeah. was really well done working with hexany i'm curious because a lot of the people that i have interviewed have been freelance composers which i'd say is is pretty common um it sounds like you did a little bit of freelance work, but pretty early on in your career, you um, you got hooked up with Hexany. So, um, but I'm curious if you know what what would be some of the differences in your mind from working freelance, and I'm sure there's a lot, and working for you know a, a shop like Hexany. Like um, just based on your colleagues in the industry or your experience as a freelancer, what are some of the big differences? Sure. Um- I, yeah, I guess from the freelance, because, yeah, I, I only did about a year of freelance work before uh, of actual composing work before I, I started up with Hexany and stuff. But, um, yeah, I, th- the hard part there, it's like, yeah, I mean, finding work is tough. You always have to be at every single event talking to people like going out. And and honestly, I when I look back at it now, especially from this this side of the business where like I'm hiring other people sometimes, it's. I, I get to see the perspective of what I was doing wrong entirely mm-hmm. where it's like I you always come across as like way too desperate and like you're going out and you're like oh I'd love to score your game you know I, like I want to score your game like oh do you need music do you need audio and stuff and that's that's like totally the wrong way to go about it and I and I totally see that now and, mm-hmm. and Richard's a really great businessman and really great at talking to people and forming relationships and and I've learned a lot through that and everything where it's, it's a, really about building relationships and stuff like yeah. that. You just cool people that are really good at what they do attract other cool people that are really good at what they do. And if you're mm-hmm. just, if you try to force that, it just, it doesn't work out. You just have to let it naturally be a cool thing. Like, Hey, we're buddies now. Like you're awesome. I'm awesome. I've got a cool product. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. let me pay you. And then, and then you can negotiate from there. But as for the differences between freelance and, and in-house, I do think that the time is different because when you when you are completely freelance, you entirely set your own schedule. Sure. And if if you're that kind of person that can go out and make these connections and grab all this work and bring it back, one you have the possibility to make a lot more money. To be honest, mm-hmm. you can make a lot more money. You can spend as much time on things as you would like and things like that. Whereas the opposite of in-house, you do have the stability of of not having to constantly be going out and getting clients and you get to really focus on what you're doing and what your craft is. That's, mm-hmm. that's one of the benefits. And I, and I mean, I, I love it here. I've never really felt like <laughs> going off and doing freelance stuff and, right, and right. I'm integrated with the company. So, so strongly now. So, 
you mentioned that you you had seen kind of the wrong way to go about it with uh you know composers coming in hat in hand and kind of saying like can i please score your game that sort of thing is there a for, for composers out there who are wanting to engage you know the development community and and potentially get gigs do you think is there is a right way to approach developers um you know i know you had mentioned building relationships and i think that's huge and every person i talk to on this show says building relationships is like the most important thing um when it comes time to sort of have that fateful conversation i guess of like okay i'm i'm gonna ask this person if maybe they would want to use my music do you can you think of any ways that it's not sleazy or not you know a bad way to go about it do you do you have any thoughts on that what what you're selling yourself as that does need to be known and that needs to be out there so like if you're an awesome composer, your music needs to be online somewhere readily accessible in a nice portfolio on your website that people can easily go to and see. Mm -hmm. And if these people you're talking with, if they know you're already doing this, they'll have you in mind. So they're already thinking about you. So it's my thoughts always is never like you, that question never fully needs to be said. You know, it's like you you make yourself available for their cert for like, Oh, I'm I'm an awesome composer. Here's all my music. Look at all this stuff. I'm really I'm all set to go, but I'm not gonna say about it. Oh, I'm a composer. Let's hang out. Let's get grab a beer and stuff like that. Oh, hey, I've got a really cool game and stuff. You're a composer, right? Yeah, I checked out your stuff. It sounds sick. Like let's <laughs> you know like let's yeah. work together. I feel like that is really the way to go about it. And I know some people have had success with with sending cold emails and stuff like, oh, hey, your project looks really great, and uh, I would love to score it and things like that. And that does work, but it's, it's, I think it's very rare and usually mm-hmm. it's not as fruitful as when it, when it comes, comes about more naturally, you know, I, right. the best thing I think is just being around these people going to yeah. all the, going to GDC is the most beneficial thing you can do. And just going to all these different game conventions and talking with game developers, getting really interested in the actual game development side of it and learning mm-hmm. the tools and actually being interested and in not just being like the kind of person that's like, Oh, I'm a, I'm a composer and I'd like to write music for your game because there are like 10 billion of those people. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's extremely saturated. Extremely. I I heard a, I had a friend who was also on this podcast, Taylor, who said it's like being a comedian or an actor, or there are thousands of people who think they're amazing at it. And only a few rise above because of either their skill or who they know or that sort of thing. So it's, it's, um, it's similar in that way. And to be honest, like, Yes, skill definitely matters and you have to be good to to excel, but it's I don't think it's the reason that people, you know, become successful in what they do because there are so many like insane composers that like can't find any work and it's right. and it's not because of their skill at all. It's purely right. just because of happenstance or the way things are approaching or do they haven't had the right opportunities and things like that, but yeah. but yeah, cuz I mean, to be honest, there's a lot of people like that are that are really up doing really well that that are not as good as some of the other people that are below them. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Purely just a, a business skill thing. Um, I'm super curious about kind of the inner workings of how you guys work at Hexany because um, I imagine, you know, you definitely have to stay on top of, of things like project management because you have these big accounts that are counting on you. Um, can you talk a little bit about your workflow, how you stay organized, maybe what a day in the life of Matthew at Hexany looks like for you? Sure. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you a little overview of how it's kind of set up now. Cause last year was kind of a crazy year. So we, we hired seven new people last year. So it was a huge year of growth. So <laughs> we kind of, we changed the way things are set up now. So it's almost like we have three teams. Now we have like our production team, 
which which there's Richard, and then we have Braden, who's our, our producer. Richard's our audio director, and then and then Gabe, who's our who's our like studio manager type type person and stuff. And they are the ones that are looking at everybody's time and schedule and being like, oh, this project will go to this person, this project will go to this person. And then within that, we have our sound division and the music division. And within the music division, Jason helps out with music. Steven helps out with music and Obi's a composer here. And we all look at things and find out who's suited best to do different tasks. And we, and we give him out like that. The way our day usually works, we'll come in and at 10, 15, we'll do our morning meeting and we'll talk about what we've been working on and, and what we need to be working on and stuff like that. And then we'll talk about any new projects that are coming up. We'll divvy out the work. We'll go about our days and start working on that. And then the next day we talk about what we did the day before like that. So we're always checking in and finding out what, what each other is doing. But at any one time, we have uh, maybe 10 to 15 projects going on, even if we're not working on them every single day, because we'll have, we'll have periods where we'll binge on a project for three months, and then we won't mm-hmm. touch it for six months, you know. But it's just kind of active sitting in the background, and we're not working on it. But in a week, the whole company will touch maybe three to five different projects, and different people are working on different things. And and for whatever reason, it's, it's rare that our sound teams are working on the same projects as our music team. It does mm-hmm. for certain things like Arena Valor and a lot of our VR projects we're working together. But um, but a lot of projects, it, it seems to be split. Like the music team has their own music projects and the sound team has their own sound projects. So mm-hmm. for whatever reason, <laughs> I love to work on them together. But Do you find that because you were like employee number one or employee number two, and now you have sort of this growing, you know, this growing company, do you find that you spend... more of your time actually in your DAW or at your piano or at your guitar, like writing bars, or do you spend more time sort of managing, communicating, project managing, you know, that sort of thing? Do you have any management roles as you've grown as a company? Management roles as far as I'm I'm still supervising like the creative direction of the music side of things. So I'm Mm -hmm. always reviewing everybody's work and talking about the direction we need to take with things before we start on them, but still ni- 95% of my job is writing. So I, awesome. I tried not much of that. That's still handled by, by mostly Richard and, and Braden who are talking about people's times and deadlines and money and all that stuff. I, mm-hmm. I'm still, yeah, 100% focused on, on music. So I saw an interview with you on YouTube actually recently about the uh, Chinese MMO that you had recently scored where you had gotten some, um, some authentic Chinese instruments. I thought that was really cool. Can you talk a little bit about that game? I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming it's not under NDA because you posted the YouTube video about it, but as much as you can talk about that game and maybe your experience in choosing those instruments and what that was like. Cause I thought that was really interesting and I'll link that in the description for everyone listening and watching. Sure. Yeah. I, yeah, I, <clears throat> for whatever reason over the last three years, uh, <laughs> I, I've had an increasingly growing number of, of, of Chinese like of games, Chinese games, and everything like that. Moonlight Blade is a gorgeous game. It's really pretty. It's the largest MMORPG in China right now, and um, wow. yeah, it's very very traditional Chinese with lots of fantasy elements. So all the places in the game are actual real cities in China, and it's like actually just the map of the world is just China, and even you can go down into the 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 Southeast Asia and kind of the Pacific ocean through there and stuff, which that's super cool. They're just done up all fantasy and beautiful. So I, I really like that game. That's and awesome. w- whenever we go to different regions in that game and we're scoring different stuff, I will look at 
what the traditional instruments are from that region and try to employ that. And that's that's something that I think is super fun to do. And also it's something the audio director of the game really wanted to push forward and, and explore. So like when we had things in the very far north of China, like close to Mongolia, we were doing things like like throat singing and, and stuff like that. And there's a there's like a, a ma uh, instrument, which is it, it's like a horse head cello type thing, which they have in Mongolia and like weird, just nasty bowed sounds with throat singing and stuff like that. And when we go down into the south, a lot of Arhu and, and Gujung. And then when we went to the Pacific Islands into like Indonesia and that area and stuff, we were doing a lot of like Islander sounding things and the more ancient sounding things. And I was taking the, the Ditsu, which is a traditional Chinese flute. And I was, instead of using the, the demo, which is this membrane that makes it buzz, I was taping it over. So it sounded like a more hollow, crude, bamboo flute and there were just different things like that where i'm like oh this would be cool if and then and then doing that and then i i try to keep it somewhat accurate to the region because i mean that just that's more fun to me and it kind of sells it for that region as well that sounds like a blast i mean i love learning new instruments and just picking something up and messing with it but just the variety of chinese instruments that uh was shown in the video and that you played was just like i mean that just looks like so much fun did you find yourself uh, when you when you said to yourself, okay, I need to write a theme for this region or I need to write a theme for this particular aspect of the game. Did you find yourself sitting down uh, with musical notation at a piano or did you actually start at the ma or at whatever instrument uh, that you were playing and sort of compose it on that instrument? Sure. Yeah, it, it actually changes completely for per game. So mm -hmm. Uh, with a lot of this very traditional sounding Chinese music, it's extremely melody driven. So it's just mm -hmm. like melody is the whole point. There's hardly any harmony if there is some. In Moonlight Blade, it's a very beautiful game. So there's a lot of uh, really gorgeous harmony. But uh, but it almost always I'm starting with melody for, for that kind of game because everything's so melodically driven. And then for when we got into the more like folky regions like the um, like the Indonesian stuff, I was starting a lot with rhythm. And actually, mm. for that game, before I even started writing music for some of those regions, we went and recorded a bunch of of cool Indonesian percussion. And we did like gamelan and different hand percussions and stuff like that. And I just had these samples and loops and stuff like that. And I took those and made music out of those because I, I it was kind of like a more primitive way to approach the music, you know, to kind of get these like primitive sounds. So that, mm. that was actually pretty fun. And that's the way I usually don't write at all. <laughs> usually, usually the way I write is... Um, is at the piano and mm -hmm. I'm just kind of thinking about melody plus harmony and just what the texture should be. And then I record the piano into my DAW and then I mute the piano track and I just look at the MIDI and I use like the MIDI almost as a score. And then I just orchestrate to the MIDI of the piano. Wow. That's pretty cool. I'd have actually never heard of that technique before, like muting the MIDI and, and using and sort of using that as a blueprint. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it helps me not get lost <laughs> where I am in the music and sometimes sure. I'll even ignore it. I'll see things and sometimes I get a little more detailed. Like I'll even put in like runs and orchestration ideas in the piano sketch. Mm -hmm. And then and that way I just, it, when I, once I go to orchestrate, it's pretty brainless. All I'm doing is choosing colors and timbres and stuff. I'm not, I don't have to worry about the actual composition anymore. So I feel like that's a easier way for me to break up approaching music when it's really dense orchestration. I like have to do that. My brain can't, like comprehend music if it's just all in my head, you know, I have to see it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, uh, kind of leads into my next question is just if you have any, um, kind of like we all have, 
riffs or modes or scales that we kind of go to um, naturally? Do you have any of those, any particular modes that you like to write in or any particular scales or harmonies, progressions, things like that, that you gravitate, gravitate towards? Sure. And it, and it, and it changes based on, on what the, the mood should be and stuff like that. But because I've done a lot of these different projects in different styles, I kind of have like, once I approach a project, it's easy for me to fall into like, Oh, like I know what this sounds like already, you know, because like mm-hmm. I've, I've kind of done this sort of thing, but I, I try not to let that happen too much, but there are those natural tendencies. And I think that's kind of where everybody's like signature sound kind of comes from. It's just like sure. their, their own, like, Oh, I just happen to always do this. So as for scales, always sticking to not really like for, for the, the Chinese stuff, it's, it's very common to just have, have a lot of pentatonic movement with diatonic notes thrown in over like big, sexy chords, like, you know, flat six major sevens and stuff while just noodling Mm -hmm. a beautiful melody and stuff like that. Like that never sounds bad. So so like I'll I'll employ that all the time because that always sounds gorgeous. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just these sounds that I've, I, I like to hear, but no, nothing, nothing really specific that it's like, Oh, in every game I need to use this scale or this, this chord. Or, sure. You know, sure. But. When you are writing at the piano, are you thinking in terms of a, the scale? So, so are you, are you thinking in terms or are you kind of just wandering and being like, well, let's see if uh you know, chromatic median sounds good here. Are you thinking like, okay, I'm in D Dorian. I want to keep it sort of in D Dorian. Let's see what kind of colors we can explore here. Cause I'm so curious about the thought process. Cause a lot of people just kind of put their hands in various places and they're like, Hey, this sounds good. You know, let me write some melodies to this. And a lot of people are very technical and you, you mentioned you're in a metal and classical, which are two very technical genres. So I'm curious if you are thinking through theory as you're writing or what theory that looks like for you. The way I've always like approached music or the way I like hear music, I don't like, I, I have to think about something before I do it. <laughs> I've never kind gotcha. of been able to like, oh, I'll just put my fingers down on the keys and see what comes out. Like, sure, that's sometimes fun to like see what kind of weird chords you can you can come up with where you're mm-hmm. just not thinking at all. But but no, I, I've always kind of had to approach it from from a theory standpoint. And whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But it's, that's just kind of the way I've always had to do it. Where I'm like, oh, I'm sticking in this mode, and if I do need to if I do need to use a borrowed chord from another scale or I need a modulator or something like that, I do think about how I'm going to do that. Or, Hey, if I use this chord, this is the emotion that's going to give off. And actually mm-hmm. I maybe like four, four or five years ago, a friend of mine introduced me to this concept called, uh, I think he called it harmonic relativity. And this was something that like super opened my eyes to a lot of things and like not worry so much about adhering purely to diatonic scales and things like that. But the basically the idea is every chord between another chord, that those two, the, the values of those chords, like this major chord and this minor chord, and the, mm-hmm. the intervals between them have a relationship. And no matter mm-hmm. what what note you're starting on, it'll always have that relationship. And it doesn't matter what what scale you're in or what Roman numeral of the scale you're in, that'll always have that relationship. Mm-hmm. And having that thought like, oh, that's really great. I can use this to to give these feelings anywhere I want in right. the music. So like one thing that's gorgeous is like, you know, like in, in a minor key, like what minor one to flat six major is just everybody likes that. That just sounds mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. So if, if you take a minor chord and you go down a major third and you play a major chord, no matter where you are in the scale, that'll always have that feeling. 
Right. So there's really great ways. Like you can modulate to the four by if you play the, the minor four chord and then you play the flat two, which would normally serve as like a Neapolitan, but you use that mm-hmm. as kind of like a flat six. And now you're in this key. Now you're in like the, the, the minor four, but it gives that same uplifting like one to flat six sound. So yeah, it's right. geek talk. But but that was one of the things that really opened my eyes. That was just an example. But any chord relationship, you're like, oh, I can use this same chord relationship wherever I am in the scale and get new colors, but achieve that same emotion. Totally. No, I love this stuff. I geek out on this stuff all the time. Um, another thing that I've been like having fun with lately is just to, to your point is a great way to visualize what you just said is the circle of fifths. And you take a, a circle of fifths and you draw like a line or an angle, like a, a different angle between two different chords. And you'll notice that as you, you know, you can rotate that angle all around the circle of fifths. And, and like you said, every chord has that relationship to every other chord. Um, so like you draw straight across, that's a tritone, you know what I mean? Like, um, I don't, I can, I don't have it in front of me, but so that's kind of fun just to like see, well, what kind of emotions do I get when I draw, you know, uh, an equilateral, equilateral triangle, you know, on the circle of fifths and, and go to these chords and, and then how can I implement that in my music? So that's a, that's a lot of fun. I, I do love geeking out about that as well. Um, do you have any, do you ever have, and I know when you're working against deadlines, you can't really afford to have writer's block, but do you ever have, uh, days, seasons, you know, weeks, whatever, where it's just, it's just tough to write. You don't like what you're making. You know, I think every artist, every creative struggles with this every now and then, but how do you deal with that? How do you stay motivated? How do you persist through some of maybe some more, uh, or do you even have those? Yeah. I mean, occasionally I do, but it, like you said, it's just, you can't afford to have writer's block. So it's like, you just, you just have to write. So, and usually like what comes, I feel like it's honestly like a mental thing a lot of times because I felt like I just came out of one, like just recently where I'm like, Oh, the last month I wasn't super stoked on what I was doing. But then I listened to what I did last month and I was like, this is actually pretty sick. So yeah. <laughs> like, it, I think it's a, it's a mental thing you get in sometimes. And if you force yourself to write, it's like, it's not like you, your brain just shut off. Like you still have these things you're still writing cool stuff, but yeah, but obviously, you know, everybody has things they'll work on where they're just like not, not feeling it, but you just kind of have to force it out. And then once you get into the groove of doing things, it's, it, it really goes away. It's, and it, it's always the, the idea of doing it where I'm like, oh, I don't want to start this. You know, and you're like an hour into it. You're like, yeah, I, I'm writing this yeah. now. And I like this. Yeah. This is fun. Yeah. So it's all about getting into that flow state. It's a lot. It's really hard to take that first step. But once you get into the flow state, you know, that's that's where it's at. You just force yourself waiting, waiting for an inspiration thing. Like, I, I honestly can't re- remember the last time I was like inspired <laughs> to, to write right. some music. Like, right. oh, I just had a melody come to me. You always kind of ha- have to hash it out. And it's kind of an ugly process, but it's, you know, it's that's the way music works. Um, so, OK, we can get totally geeky here. I want to know what are some of your favorite uh, what, what's, what, first of all, what DAW do you use? What's some gear that you love? Some of your favorite sample libraries, VSTs, let's get into gear. Just, you know, be as geeky as you like. I'll, I'll preface this. I'm like the anti gear. <laughs> I am okay. like, so, it's like, once I find out something that I like, I am just, I will use that until there is something huge that makes me change from it. Like I, I'm gotcha. Yeah. Like once I find something that works for me, I'm really into it. So I use Pro Tools. 
So this is start start number one. Everybody hates Pro Tools for for sequencing and stuff. But again, I've used it since I was like 13 years old. So I, I've like I really love Pro Tools. So I'm going to continue using Pro Tools. Yeah. And uh, and within that, uh, I'll, I'll get I'll go through my orchestral template and I can talk about the samples I'm using. So sweet for the for the winds right now. I'm using the Spitfire winds, the symphonic winds, and then. Okay. But those are very rarely used, usually for solos and things like that. For the bulk of my woodwind writing, just because they're so easy to use, very playable, are the VSL winds. I have them set up so I can play them all in with a pedal between shorts and longs. So I can nice. actually perform in every single one of my lines. And they're all separated by players, so like first flute, second flute, first oboe, second oboe, and all set up like that. So, And it's all in score order. So I can play in every individual line like that. And then going into brass, I have the Spitfire brass. Again, I use it for for things that are a little more classical. I think some of the short sounds out of the Spitfire symphonic brass for like the horns sound really nice and can't be produced by other libraries. And then, but the bulk of my brass is still Cinebrass. The library is like ten years old, and I still think it just like it kicks ass. It, awesome. it's, it's 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 really good. I really love that library. Yeah, and one of the things I've always been about is I love simple, simple, easy workflows. Where it's like, because mm-hmm. I, I feel like I, I can get a better product out of it because it's so easy to use and and I can perform things in and kind of give it my own performance feel. But if I have to sit there and tweak it with the pencil tool and do that, one, I'm losing a lot of time. Two, I feel like the end product isn't as good, even if like the, the sample technically is better or some other people get better results out of another library. These are just the libraries I tend to get a better result out of just mm-hmm. because of my flow. I've wanted to, to, to make the brass switch to... Berlin brass for a long time because they they do they sound freaking phenomenal but it just mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't fully work into my workflow and I've talked to them a little bit about about like what I've what I've really been wanting to get out of it so I can so I can use it but yeah Cinebrass is the bulk of my brass right now for the strings uh Spitfire symphonic strings are the bulk of it again Spitfire like killed it with their playable legato which is like they have that one patch and I use that for like everything I don't use CC changes or key switches or anything to switch between staccato or legato. All I use is their playable legato. What is that? Can you unpack that a little bit? I'm not, I'm actually not familiar with that. Yeah. Yeah. They, they have it in some of their other libraries and it just, for whatever reason, it is not as good as it is on their, their symphonic strings. It's you just play it in. That's it. It's just, you literally just play it in and short notes, you play it short and it just sounds like a nice short spiccato and the length of the note changes the, the feel of the note. And it's gotcha. super great. So, cause I like to play everything in and I'm not a huge fan of like over quantizing things. So yeah. what I'll often do, if I have like a really fast short string passage or like a run, I'll half speed my DAW and record it in and record it in by hand mm. while, it's, while it's recording back at half speed. But this playable legato thing makes me like, it's so nice cause I don't have to think about switching between, you know, the short samples and the long samples and making sure they sound even and balanced. It's just, you just play it in and it sounds awesome. So I really love that library for that reason. The only thing I don't use that library for are for longer, more expressive legato passages, which I feel like they're a little too harsh for that. They're a little bit like too aggressive, but for the, the more long, slow, beautiful legato stuff, I use the cinematic studio strings now, which which just sound awesome. <laughs> they have that really annoying lag and latency. They're a little hard to use, but they, they sound so good that it's worth it to like kind of go through that, that pain of programming them. Do you have any outboard gear that you use is pretty much everything in the box for you? None. And, okay. and the, and the longer 
I, I spent at, like doing this professionally, the less and less I want to mess with it. Cause yeah. I, I, used, I used to do it a lot more when I was really into my recording engineering days and I would, I would run yeah. stems through, through some hardware compressors or preamps or things like that. But it's just, when you have revisions and you have all these times and stuff, it's so much easier to just keep it within the box and stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I don't like to have to, you know, print all these things to create this and then send it off. If, if it's a final mix thing and, and people are really, that's their craft. They're like, I'm a mix engineer. That makes sense when people are doing that. But honestly, from just a professional composer that's spitting out stuff, the in the box mm-hmm. stuff is so good already. It it's really like is. That, that extra 1%, is not as important as the quality of the actual product that is going to sure. be set through these outboard gear in the first place. So kind of, right. I, I say kind of let the, the people who are, that's their profession mess with that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. And a money sink. Yeah. Those things are not cheap. Holy cow. Um, yeah. So I, I, when I was watching that video about you guys, um, uh, composing for, uh, moonlight, it was interesting how you talked about, you'd actually gone to China, um, do you have any other kind of memorable stories for working on games? And it doesn't need to involve like travel or anything, but th- when you think about fond memories at Hexany working for s- on specific projects, are there any projects that kind of stick out to you? Like, man, this was awesome. Or you have a great memory associated with one of them. Yeah. And, and honestly, it's, it's like a weird thing where it, like it, it doesn't sound like special to other people. It's like a personal thing. It's like, but every once in a while I'll be working on projects and I'm like, wow, this is awesome. I love what I'm writing. Like everything is just clicking and flowing. This project is cool. I'm working on it. This is just awesome. And it's like a little personal <laughs> thing that's never said and nobody even like hears about it, you know, but right. I really, I really get that with this game that I've worked on for years and I still, I'm still working on now, but called kingdom craft. And, um, and every, every season we update the game with a whole new set of music. So I take the same exact themes and the same exact tracks and I just, I rearrange them for the new season. So we do like winter and then spring, summer, fall. And right now we're updating all the music in the game for Chinese new year. So we're taking all the stuff in the game and making it like super, like extravagantly Chinese, which is, so just taking state themes and just rearranging the music. It's kind of fun because it's, it's like a little practice of like theme and variations every single every every three months. I do like yeah. variations on the entire game. <laughs> that's that, really I, cool, man. I do think that that's really fun. And I, I get a lot of joy out of using using things like that. That that's really great. But I do actually I love that we go to China every single year because we have mm. so many so many Chinese clients out there and we and we meet with them and we hang out with them and we get to awesome. see the culture a little bit. And I, I go and I have, a, I have a pretty large collection now of, of different Chinese instruments and every we'll always go to like the music street and I'll go through and buy a bunch of new like wins and, and take a look at different things that I want to pick up different percussion things. And I, I do think that's really fun. And when I have those actual tangible instruments, I feel like I'm a lot more inspired to like get in and, and start working on these things. That's really cool. Yeah. I definitely think that there is a, a direct correlation between, you know, our motivation and our fire to create an actual real tangible instruments that we play. You know, I think sometimes when I'm too much in the box, you know, I can get a little stale, but when you actually step out and you have something that you can play physically, it is definitely extremely inspiring. Um, that's always kind of been one of my, uh, one of my big things too, where it's like a pure mock-up people can do them and they make them sound awesome. And I, I can get them to a place where I'm, I'm happy with them, but I don't think it, it 
gets to that next level of fidelity until that you are yourself playing on it. Even when you have other people record on it that are way better than you of musicians, like, cause we record with orchestras and soloists that are like a billion times better of a musician than I am, but I still play on every single thing I put out, whether it be like something silly, like a guitar or like little flute passages or, or just like hand percussion or me singing or just making weird mm. mouth sounds. For some reason, I, I feel like once you actually perform something on your own music with a real instrument or your own voice or something like that, it, it kind of takes it to that next like personal crafted level. I don't even know if it actually changes the product, but, but at least for me, it, it, it kind of makes me feel like this is, this is mine now. This isn't yeah. just a computer rendering of what I wanted. You know, it's, this is mine. So yeah. I'm curious because a lot of people who do listen to the show are younger composers or composers who are starting out. Um, do you have any other sort of principles or words of wisdom um, that maybe have helped with your success uh, for how composers can you know, not break into the industry? Because I don't know that breaking into the industry is necessarily a thing, but uh, sort of ooze into the industry or kind of like, um, be, you know, basically, you know, start down the path of maybe making this a career. Yeah, sure. I, I like that you said like breaking into the industry versus oozing into the industry. Cause I, I, I still feel like I haven't broken into the industry. It's like, it's, you know, you can't, you, that's, that's like a constant thing, you know, it's yeah. just, you get more clients and it's like, you're like, yeah. Oh, when am I going to make it as a composer? It's like, sure, what does that mean? Sure. Like, what does that mean exactly? And I actually stole that from Jason Graves, dead space composer. So I can't take credit for that. He actually said that. So yes, I totally agree though. He's a smart dude. I love hearing him talk about music too, because he's very real about it and he understands that it's, it's professional, a profession. And uh, yeah, I love hearing him talk. He's a smart yeah. dude. Yeah, he is. But uh, anyways, um, yeah. One of the things I, I looked at besides that, that there isn't, there isn't really such thing as a, a break into the industry. Just at some point you realize that like, that's just where you're making all your money. And then, <laughs> and then yes. you're like, here I, guess, I am. Yeah. I guess this is it. So, um, yeah, the biggest thing, at least for me that I was doing wrong was I was constantly having these thoughts where it's like, no one will hire me for their game, but I never really understood why <laughs> I never mm. fully understood. Like, and, but now when I look back, I look at what I was doing and I'm like, dude, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have hired me. Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's like I had, I had like nothing up online. There was like nothing professional about me. You know, I like was always talking about how I've never worked, wanted to work on a game or I've never worked on a game before, but I really want to like get started and things like that. And yeah. I feel like the, the totally opposite needs to be set up where it's almost like you need to have the total appearance of a professional working composer before people will want to work with you because they don't want to take a chance on somebody that's going to totally flub their project, you know, because then sure. that's going to be a huge waste of money and time and frustration and it's going to be awful. They want to, you know, they want to invest in somebody who they know is going to give them a good product. So you right. need to have, whether it be totally free work that, that, that people are doing for, for student projects or their own portfolio pieces and stuff. But I feel like they need to have things ready to go. So when it does happen and somebody's like, oh, like, I would love to, to bring you on for the project, mm -hmm. you can show and be like, look, this is what I'm about. And people can look at it. It's very easy for them. They can just click play on something and go, wow, this sounds awesome. They don't have to go searching through it and see all these weird, like, half student projects, half, like, you know, <laughs> just, oh, did noodling number one or, or sketch sure. idea number two, you know, like sure. things that are really solid and look like they came from a game and that are like really well produced so that people, 
you, it's like the fake it till you make it type thing, you know, where right. it's like you, you have to give off the, the aura that you're already a working successful composer before you become yeah. a successful composer. That's right. And I will say uh, your site, by the way, is phenomenal. Uh, one of the best portfolio sites for composers I've ever seen. It's really good. I had a, I had a designer build it for me and then and then uh, and then everybody from the company was also given their input and stuff like that. But yeah, I love I love the way it turned out. But yeah, I, I didn't do the own design on that. But I do think it's clean. That's awesome. Well, I'll put the link to that in the description. So people who are uh, who maybe don't have their website up yet can take some inspiration from that. Yeah. And w- one of the things I was, I was super nervous about that too, that like Richard was like, Oh, come on, you got to do this. You got to do this on your website. It's just like, you go to the landing page and just a picture of you. I was like, uh, that like horrifies me just to have this picture be the first thing everybody sees. But that's how people remember you to be honest. Yeah, it's like, they, it's they true. keep seeing you, they hear your name. And then when people are talking about who they're going to hire, if you've been in their mind a lot and they see you popping up everywhere, they see you at all the events, they go to your website and bam, there's your face. Like they're going to remember you. And they'd be like, huh, I wonder about that person. Like, I wonder if they're good. Like, and then they'll go to your website. And then if there's a big old play button that they could click play on and it sounds awesome, they'll be like, dude, yeah, let's hire this. Um, well, great, man. I just want to end with one question. And that is, you know, without violating any NDA, of course, what are, what's something that's either in the near future or the distant future that you're just really looking forward to in your work? This could be a goal that you have 10 years from now. This could be your next project. It's just something you're looking forward to. One of the things I've always really wanted to do is, is build my, my base of like domestic game projects or music projects. Cause, uh, on, on our sound side, we've been doing a lot more of the AAA stuff here in America and stuff. And while I'm doing a lot of AAA overseas, I would love to bring a little bit more back back over here. So that's, that's one of my long-term goals right now. But, um, as, as for the immediate future, definitely new, new updates for the games I'm, I've been working on currently. So like kingdom craft, I've been working on a ton of new stuff that's going to come out just recently. Uh, we launched a, a Saint Seiya video game, which was super fun to do. I got to do like anime metal and rock and stuff like that. That was, that was super fun. Got, got a lot of new stuff for, for different games, like, like arena valor and honor of Kings for the Chinese new year. We're doing a whole bunch of updates for that. That'll, that'll sound really great. And yeah, there's always new updates for arena valor and stuff. I'm consistently working on that game every, every month. So <laughs> awesome. Well, great, man. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out to chat. I'm going to put all your information, your site, Twitter, everything like that in the description. So anyone interested in checking out your site or your music can do so. Um, Again, man, thank you so much. I think there's a ton of advice here that composers of all levels really can uh, can utilize to uh, further their career. So thanks again for coming out. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Composer Code. If you'd like to help make Composer Code the best it can be, consider supporting the show on patreon.com slash composer code. I'm planning to expand Composer Code beyond just a podcast into YouTube documentaries on specific games or composers, tutorials, blog posts, maybe even an actual published book one day. This kind of content interests you. I'd love to make you a part of that journey. I also love hearing from my listeners. So if you have feedback or comments, or if you're a composer and you'd like to be on the show, definitely hit me up on Facebook, send me a DM on Twitter, or you could just send me an email, matt at mattkenyon.net. Thanks again so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode.